Welcome to the Arena Decklist Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson, joined as always by Brian Gottlieb, and we have one of the easiest and greatest shows for you in which it is preview season again. Love it. If we could just live in an endless state of preview season, I, w- I would be very happy. But like for a purpose, I, I guess we do kind of live in that, but I often feel like half the sets are reprint sets or like something that's not for me. But if there's just a continuous cycle of new standard cards to talk about every week, I would be pretty happy. I would appreciate it if things could somehow get to be where, you know, there's like smaller releases every month or something. I think that Mm. that would do a lot to keep things interesting. Like micro sets? Yeah, basically. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the the digital TCGs have turned to models like that and like Legends of Runeterra or even Hearthstone, like smaller expansions rolling out. Obviously, I understand why there's distribution issues when it comes to magic, but it's an interesting concept. I, I think it is very good for keeping play fresh. Yeah, no, agreed. I, I think Shadowverse was the first one I saw do it, and they did it in a way that I didn't really like, where it was like full set, and then halfway through, they would just release like 30 new mythics or whatever, which is right. obviously a lot as far as like power creep is concerned and stuff like that. I would like to see that toned down a little bit, but something like that could be cool. Yeah, more moderation in terms of like just just basically splitting what is a normal set, but making it across a bunch of releases and finding cool thematic ways to do it, I think could be cool. And also like you talk about the tie between storytelling and Magic the Gathering cards, think about the progression in a set. Like you actually get a chance to tell the story in the play if you're doing micro releases because there's whatever, you know, Oath of the Gatewatch's Gathering and then there's nonsense happening and the nonsense is reflected in the cards and... It all sounds pretty cool to me, but logistically, probably never going to see it. Well, yeah, I mean, it's also weird for something like War of the Spark, where you, you know, might open a card that is like the end of the story before you see the rest of the story or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you you avoid that if you have the rolling releases, which I think is kind of cool. Right. So anyway, I guess we'll actually talk about the cards. Sure. I mean, we're not we're not gonna do the thing where we talk about nonsense for 20 minutes before we start. We We very easily could. Okay. Okay. So there is a sort of weird release schedule and where we would normally pull data from hasn't updated. So like Scryfall doesn't have all of the cards up quite yet. And, you know, there's stuff like Mythic Spoiler that is posting like very obvious leaks and Daily MTG doesn't have all of the cards in their database yet. So I am going off of uh, SCG's pre-order stuff where they, you know, they're only going to let you pre-order cards that have been officially previewed. So I think that it is safe to go off of that list. Uh, I don't think I messed any of this stuff up by including any of the leaks in it, but if I, if I did, I'm very, very sorry. Yeah, we're, do- we're doing our best to avoid that. We have checked this and think we have it down to only cards which have been officially spoiled. You have our apologies if we mess any of it up. Yeah, so I, I hope I don't blow it. But I spent some time like double and triple checking this. So fingers crossed. Anyway, first up, we have a return of snow covered lands. So uh, one of each basic and some dual lands that ETB tapped uh, that are also basic land types. So that's kind of interesting. Nothing groundbreaking there, except it means that snow is in the set to some degree. So that's cool. Yeah, uh, I think we already knew this, but I think only by preview or non-official previews at this point but confirmed snow is back 
Snow is complicated as far as I'm concerned. I like it. I like it conceptually. I like what it does on magic cards, but there are some real consequences of snow. And the the biggest consequence to me is invalidating the most arguably meaningful card type in magic's history. And that's basic lands, being able to go and be very selective about your forest, plains, swamps, mountain, mountains, islands. That's an important part of magic to me. And the fact that I can use those five basic land types, cards that I actually acquired in 1993 or 94 and continue to play with them, that's really, really cool. It's a huge part of the allure and the history of magic. And Snow kind of cuts that off because it becomes strictly correct to play Snowlands as opposed to non-Snowlands because you at least have bluff equity in doing so. And you take all the basic lands out of magic entirely. Now, could you punish Snowlands? Could you have snow-covered Landwalk or some other nonsense like that? Sure. And maybe we'll actually see that in this set. I hope there is some reason to be disincentivized from just always playing Snow because we saw this happen at the release of Modern Horizons in the Eternal formats, where everyone just defaulted to Snowlands now, it was strictly correct to do so. Some cases you would split weird things like gift piles or uh, naming conventions on Field of the Dead, so that would come up. But on the whole, basic lands were invalidated in Modern for a very long period of time. And Modern Legacy are formats about customization and being able to play with particularly valuable card types, quite frankly. And the Snowlands cut your feet out from under you as far as that was concerned. Yeah, it's it's pretty sad whenever, you know, that's that's like a normal thing, right? You know, people have, like, they prefer their APOC lands or arena lands or beta lands or whatever. And that is a big deal for a lot of people. And then, yeah, when snow exists, it does kind of invalidate that. I will say, though, that there's, you know, s- these snow lands look cool. There's going to be like collector booster editions and stuff. So like maybe it's not the same, right? Because you don't get like this wide swath of selection for how you want to personalize your deck or whatever. Uh, But you do get some added options for bling. True. And there are more and more of those starting to accumulate at this point as we've done snow a few times now. So there's definitely some options. And these particular snow covered basics are beautiful. They look great. I... I don't know. I, I am, again, trepidatious about the return of snow. When I when I used to do events uh, with Craig Kremples on the SCG tour, Craig hated snow-covered lands. You just see him start to like get a little fidgety in his chair every time someone played a snow-covered land. Because I mean, he's like he's like us. He's been around for a very long time, and he appreciates the the old school nature of the game. And it's it's different in standard. I think I, I like them coming back to standard, but everything expands across older sets, and it'll affect Commander. It'll af- affect modern it'll affect pioneer now where you have to play snow covered lands all the time so there, there's a real cost here and i hope there's some reason to not always just default to these lands same uh on that note we have our first snow card frostbite r snow instance this deals two damage to target creature or planeswalker if you control three or more snow permanents it deals three damage instead hmm uh, not super worried about this card. Obviously, it's pretty below rate. Even, even turned on all the time, I think this card would just be fine. Like It probably should exist in standard. So the fact that you have to work for it makes me think this is more limited fodder than anything else. Not being able to go face really blunts the impact of this card. Not a huge concern for me here, but a, a neat little removal piece. And certainly one that if you are already heavily invested in snow, you'll turn to in a lot of scenarios. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I like this sort of thing as a sideboard card. It's like we've we've sideboarded things like Magma Spray before, even though the Exile Clause is not super relevant. So yeah, this is almost certainly going to see some amount of play. Being able to take Planeswalkers means that it's you know just less likely to be dead in mid range or control mirrors and stuff. So I like this card. I don't know. I, I think because of the reasons you noted, I would much rather see Snow on like actual payoffs rather than just like, oh, like my slightly good card gets a little bit better because that just kind of like worsens the problem. But yep. we'll see. I agree with you. Uh, we also have a new Planeswalker in Nico Aris or Aris. I'm not sure. This is Azorius. It's X-Dub-U-U, three starting loyalty. When this enters the battlefield, create X shard tokens and shards are enchantments with two. Sacrifice this enchantment, scry one, then draw a card. So clues but are enchantments and you scry. Plus one, up to one target creature you control, can't be blocked this turn. Whenever that creature deals damage this turn, return it to its owner's hand. Minus one, this deals two damage to target tapped creature for each card you've drawn this turn. And minus one, create a shard token. This card is weird. Very weird. A, a tremendous amount to unpack on this card. I think starting with probably the shard tokens is the most interesting thing. I'm assuming this is something that will be around in this set. It, it seems like you wouldn't go through the trouble of keywording this unless it was going to be on several cards. So assume these are our new clues. It's it's weird because like if, if you read the story on this character, I, I feel like it is something that they specifically do. Okay. Well, that's so interesting. If, if there if there are like, you know, Nico specific cards or something, I could see it. Yeah, like they split, spread their influence across other things. Yeah. So I, I I don't know if this is this is like an evergreen thing for the set or not. Okay. I'm le- I'm leaning towards no, but could certainly be wrong. It, it okay. would be weird. It would be weird to like keyword this otherwise. Well, thank you for sharing that because, as we know, I have a huge blind spot when it comes to the lore. You're my lore Sherpa, so I'm glad you pointed me in that direction. So I won't assume that. Obviously, better than clues in some ways, worse than clues in some ways. Artifact often mattered a lot. Uh, I don't know that it would in present formats, so probably a net upgrade here. Modal Planeswalkers are always very interesting to me, especially ones with X in the casting cost. And this card is capable of doing two really meaningful things, as far as I'm concerned. One, it can just be a huge source of card advantage. Many, many, many cards when you get to the late game. Tremendous amounts of mana investment, but if we're at a place where we're playing long games of standard and there's a lot of resources being traded back and forth, I, I think that's fine. I it, Without Uro in the metagame anyway, I think it's fine. You would always default to Uro for that role in all other circumstances, but with it being banned, something like Nico could be the late game breaker that you really need. But for this card to be good, I think it needs to be good cast for three mana. Yeah. And I think it is. I'm I'm pretty sure I can find enough uses for this card. Now, I don't think it's like default good and you just slam it into every deck. But you think about the mode of playing against a control deck and just hard minusing this. I like that. I think it's a threat that a control deck would have to answer. And if they're, you know, creatureless and not capable of generating threat on the battlefield... I think you can get a lot from Nicaris, but also if you have creatures that can really take advantage of being returned to your hand, or maybe creatures that have like an Ophidian type ability where they connect and they do something meaningful, I think you can push this into 
really powerful territory. And of course, I'm going to mention Urian. You knew I was. It's not my first place to go with this card, but if you can get multiple triggers from your Urian, you're probably winning the game, and I'm sure we'll see it in conjunction. More because the other cards you want to play with Nico will go very well with Urian. If you want to do stuff like Skyclave Apparition and reset your Skyclave Apparition to take out another permanent, uh, I, I think you're already in the market for a Urian anyway. So it needs some concessions in deck building. I dislike the minus one quite a bit. It is very situational, but still like a pretty light battlefield opponent hasn't generated an overwhelming force yet. And this is your turn three play and you just pick off their one threat. That sounds good to me. I I think you can start putting together a winning battlefield from that position. So I am seeing enough from Nico Aris that I believe in it as just a three cost planeswalker. And then you add on the modality. That's when I start to really get sold on this card. And I I think maybe it's a little underappreciated right now. I'm basing that only on the cost that it's being pre-sold for because it's pretty low for a Planeswalker, uh, only $10 right now. And I feel like these things usually pop at like $30 or $40 to start, which is way overpriced. But I, I don't know. The pricing market is so weird now. $10 just strikes me as a little light for a card that I, I think is very playable. Yeah, that's that's strange to me. I didn't notice the price. Uh, it is definitely lower than than what I would have expected. Yes. Just just the fact that it scales so well, right? Like a, a three-mana Planeswalker, that's fine. And then scales super well into the late game is is pretty incredible. I think so. I, I think there's plenty of situations where this is just going to be your refresh and you're going to be very happy with it. And the versatility it provides you is good. It's it's going to be good on every single turn of the game. And as long as you're able to stretch games out with Nico, it should benefit you. And I think it's got decent tools for doing so. Like I said, not a great protection ability. And it costs a lot of mana if you're going to use it to like take out a big threat on the turn you play it. But it's possible. And we're talking about a card that's designed to let you play a very long game with its scaling ability. So maybe you will see some of that happen. Uh, you mentioned that shards are you know, potentially worse than clues because they're enchantments instead of artifacts. Does Satessan Champion like beckon to you at all again? Uh, it always does. Card I, I really, really like. And of course, Theros is around. So there's some payoffs out there for enchantments. I will have to do a deep dive, go looking. That's not the synergy I'm really trying to maximize with this card, though. I, I'm real. I'm, I'm way more interested in the plus one and what you can get out of it. But I guess Satessan Champion plays well with that, too, because it's a, a battlefield trigger, right? So if you have enchantment creatures that you're bringing in and out, you can get paid on that as well. Right. I mean, you can either make the champion really big and unblockable and just kill them one hit sure. or yeah, yeah. just do it on, you know, your one drop Alciate or whatever and draw another card. So sounds pretty good to me. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of different uses for this. Obviously the mana cost is prohibitive too. I mean, we didn't really talk about that, but like it's, it's all colored mana outside of the X. So I guess that does make things a little bit difficult. It does. We have uh, Max Fliplands now, which is going to soothe that problem a little bit. But we talked a bunch here about how Fliplands are odd for casting these cards with very heavy colored mana requirements. So I, I do think this will take some deck building concessions to get your colors correct. And like I mentioned, Skyclave Apparition, uh, maybe that's that's tough, uh, especially if you're trying to get into a third color. So we'll have to puzzle all of that out. But in terms of potential, I'm in on this card. I, I'm, I'm a believer. Yeah, me too. Uh, next up, we have Valky, God of Lies. This is a DFC. The front half is 1B21, Legendary Creature God. When this enters the battlefield, each opponent reveals their hand. For each opponent, exile a creature card. They reveal this way until Valky leaves the battlefield, and you can pay X 
choose a creature card exiled with converted mana cost X. This becomes a copy of that card. But wait, there's more. There's there's more. I didn't know if you want to talk, you know, side to side or anything. Uh, I, I think present the whole card and then we'll go over it side by side. Okay. Backside, Tybalt, Cosmic Imposter, 5BR, Legendary Planeswalker, Tybalt, 5 starting loyalty. As this enters the battlefield, you get an emblem with, you may play cards exiled with this, and you may spend mana as though it were mana of any color to cast those spells. Plus two, exile the top card of each player's library. Minus three, exile target artifact or creature. And minus eight, exile all cards from all graveyards. Add RRR. Go. Okay. Again, a lot to process. Thematically, I really like this. I I like the idea of Tybalt masquerading as something else. And... Some kind of Loki analog is cool to me. I was wrong about double face cards in the last set. My concern was that they would lead to overly homogenized experiences, too much consistency, almost too much dis- like micro decision-making where moment to moment, you could just do whatever you wanted. You always had the option you needed. Ultimately, that didn't play out. Double face cards are played in lesser numbers than I expected. There is a cost to them. Some of the bizarre stuff like the Oops All Spells decks in older formats, uh, not something we talked about all that much in the preview season, but I I think that proved to be a bigger problem than the raw consistency problem that I was concerned about. I'm a little concerned again because the entire basis of like magic is a risk-reward proposition, trade-offs. If you have something that's good in the early game, it should be bad in the late game. And if your deck is full of early disruptive elements, then you should draw those late in the game and be kind of stuck. And, you know, Thoughtseize off the top of the deck on turn 20 is not particularly good, but you benefited from it on turn one. So that's the cost you pay. And if you just have cards that, if you had showed me either side of this card and said, this is a new card in the set, I would say, huh, interesting. Pretty good card. Yeah. I wouldn't be over the moon about either, but I'd be like, pretty good card. But you put them together, and I I wonder what the net result of that is. I'm, I'm not blowing an alarm. I'm not overly concerned. Just to me, having a early disruptive creature that also can be honestly game-breaking. Like if, if you get the right thing with Valky, you're in a pretty good position. I mean, let's, let's all be thankful that Uro is no longer around, and we don't have to worry about Valky turning into Uro on turn three. But like it could turn into some other stuff that's problematic. It could turn into Croxa pretty quickly and disrupt the game in that fashion. So I guess no Omnath impersonations. Again, thank you. I'm glad that card is gone. But good solid card that against the right opponent will really, really change the course of the game. And then if you hit it late, you just have exactly what you want. You have a game-breaking Planeswalker. I mean, Tybalt to me on the backside feels closer to a six-mana Planeswalker than a seven-mana Planeswalker. But you don't scoff at any six-mana Planeswalkers either. They do so much. They take over the game so quickly that you're usually happy to pay that cost. And when you're getting the versatility that this card provides, I don't know, man. This this looks solid to me. I'm ready to be wrong about it because I was so wrong on the DFCs. But it, it just seems when you're presented with two good options, you're going to take that a lot of the time. Yeah. No, I, I basically agree with you as far as I don't like that this is a good two drop and a good end game card. 
I, I just, you know, don't like the fact that there, there is no real opportunity cost to putting stuff like this in your deck, right? Because right. you get, you get paid unless you're on exactly like turn six, right? Like it, in, if your opponent is hell bent on turn six, then this card is kind of weak if you draw it then. But that's, that's only assuming that you're not going to live until, you know, the next turn or whatever to play your right. mana card. So I, I think this card is powerful. I think it's, it's pretty solid. Uh, the, the front half, obviously it's going to matter, you know, how creature dense the format is and everything, but the way things have been and the way things are shaping up, it seems like this is just going to be a very solid, very good card. And, you know, I, I can't think of like a specific type of deck or opponent where, Tybalt is particularly good in that matchup or against them or whatever, but it's just probably going to end up being fine against everyone, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's my read on it is you can always find something to do with it. And the threat of having a seven mana game ending planeswalker on the battlefield is it's just too useful to not, not be good again, like getting to points where, you stabilize and you reach a late game and you just always have your payoff. It's like Nico Aris again, right? Like you're, you're generally going to play it early, but if you rip it late, you've got a whole nother set of options available to you and you have basically an instant refresh. Now this is not refreshing you immediately, but it could. And it also just answers any problems you may be currently having directly. So that modality is frightening to see that on the first two cards we're really talking about. Uh, at least the first two constructed worthy cards that we're really talking about, just both really, really modal in their applications. And uh, it, it seems to be the flavor of current magic where we're, you know, we coined this whole way of talking about modal double face cards and uh, modal is spot on. There's just so many options now. Yeah. And it's also worth noting that both of these cards really want you to be able to make all of your land drops, you know, so like any sort of card advantage or, uh, acceleration, uh, you know, maybe it's not worth it to go super hard into acceleration, but if there's something that's, uh, like incidental, you know, that, that sort of thing becomes even better because of how hard these cards scale into the late game. Yeah. Maybe this is what it takes to get people to push into the type of land counts that you and I were advocating when we first saw the double phase cards, the 28, 29 land decks, where you just know if, again, you have two options, you can, you can play the card, on its front side and, you know, get a removal spell or whatever it is your double-faced modal card is doing, or you make your land drop. And then you have two more options. You either have this card early or you have it late. And if you're always making your land drop, you're able to better utilize that flexibility. Yeah. Yeah, something like Solemn Simulacrum uh, is, you know, a card that's been definitely underappreciated, but with something like Nico Eris, it, it starts looking better and better, you know, because mm. you have these things that scale so well. Yeah, uh, that's a great combination right there. You're you're getting paid on the X side of Nico Iris and also the plus one and get multiple lands out of your deck with your Solemns. So. Yeah. Uh, invasion of the Giants. You are Saga. Chapter one, scry two. Chapter two, draw a card. Then you may reveal a giant card from your hand. When you do, this deals two damage to target opponent or planeswalker. Chapter three, the next giant spell you cast this turn costs two less to cast. How do you feel about this one? People are way higher on this card than I am. I, I don't quite see the excitement for it. Uh, expensive preordain that eventually you, you might get some upside on your giant spell that you cast, which like I think the assumption is it's going to be Bonecrusher Giant, but 
I don't know that you can give up your two drop turn to get paid on a future turn for an already pretty efficient card that's like just designed to fill in gaps in your mana curve anyway because of its versatility and its yeah. modality again. So this feels a little sticky to me. Obviously, there's like blink shenanigans, but the blink shenanigans with sagas don't really work out in my experience. I, I very rarely blink like my birth of Miletus with my Urian. So I I don't think that's all that good. And then the damage being limited to opponent or planeswalker, it's like, sure, you appreciate the chip, but does it amount to anything? And I think the opportunity cost on this card is just too high. Curious to hear where you're at. It depends on what giants are in the set, right? Sure. Uh, of course. One way to look at this is if there are things like Nico, where people are playing cheaper planeswalkers, then you're getting more value out of the two damage potentially. And I, you, you obviously play like Bone Crusher alongside this, and I agree with you that they are both kind of doing the same thing. But that's I, that's maybe a bonus where Bone Crusher is really good at like filling in your two mana and your three mana, and you know just wherever you have holes on your mana curve, and this kind of does the same thing. Uh, albeit just not really with Bone Crusher Giant, you know? It's just like if you don't have Bone Crusher Giant, you can play this and then, you know, still get to spend your mana doing stuff and then uh, get a discount on a future giant. Like, you know, maybe something that's worth playing that costs like five or six. So I look at this as more of accomplishing the same thing and just being able to spend all your mana on every turn. Okay. Okay. I will say that I I basically discounted the possibility of there being a bunch of constructed playable giants. I was kind of looking at it as like this card on its face and the only payoff you're going to get giant-wise is probably due to be Bone Crusher Giant. If that is not true, and there are a bunch of good giants in this set, I will revise my opinion to this being potentially playable in tribal circumstances, but that is not the level of hype I've seen for this card. I've just seen people who like think it's a flat-out good card, and I am not at all there. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not there either. I, I was mostly there like if, if you are getting value off of Chapter 3 and in discounting a, a more expensive giant or, you know, being able to say it is just Bone Crusher Giant or whatever. You get to play Bone Crusher Giant and have man open for like a counterspell or more card drawing or whatever. It's like, OK, that's cool. You know, that that probably works. But you need a, a fairly high density of giants in your deck yes. to be able to make that work. Right. Yep. Yeah, and uh, giants that also benefit from this discount. So it's like they have to be of a specific converted mana cost, and they probably will be. I don't think that's a, a huge hurdle. I don't expect the giants to be super deep on colored pips. But still, another limitation where there aren't all that many giants right now. So that'll have to be something filled out pretty dramatically for me to be high on this card. All right, well, let's try this one. Glimpse the Cosmos. One you sorcery. Look at the top three cards of your library, put one of them into your hand and the rest on the bottom of your library in any order. As long as you control a giant, you may cast this from your graveyard by paying you rather than paying its mana cost. If you cast this this way and it would be put in your graveyard exile instead. Show me the giants, man. I like yeah. This card is is not good enough, again, on its face. We've seen this effect many, many times. We've seen it at instant speed, and it's generally not good enough. So if I just want to play Giants anyway, there's really, really good Giants in this set, then you can talk me into playing this card and it be meaningful. But I'm I'm not putting a bunch of Giants in my deck just for this card. It has to be something where I'm already there anyway, and now I'm willing to evaluate this card for what it brings to the table. Not I'm jumping through a bunch of hoops to get this card to work. 
But if you are playing like 12 to 16 giants, it's pretty solid. I believe that there's, there's gotta be such good giants for that to be the case. And again, this is very similar to like the last card we just talked about where you're just trying to set up mana efficiency. You always have something to do. You keep going deeper and deeper. And that, that all sounds good. It sounds like good, clean, classic magic that we don't play anymore. Uh, 2013 magic. So we, ex- we expect our effects to be bigger. If we build around snowballs, we expect our snowballs to just consume the game, not to get grant us small edges. And I think this falls more in the small edge category. Mm, kind of. I don't know. I, I think that this card is maybe maybe not better specifically, but the, at least the way that I'm imagining it, it's more worth playing than Invasion of the Giants. It's more of a payoff to me for being tribal. Okay. I want to see more Giants before I weigh in on that. I, I think like the mana cost of Giants affect that a bunch, and it, it's all very hard to parse right now. Yeah. But I think when you're looking at a card in this early stage and you're like, how excited should I be about this? You have to ask yourself, like, am I really hoping that there's a ton of giants so I can unlock this card? Like, do I think this is, if this card is unlocked, do I think this makes a top contender in the format based on everything else that's going on? And unless the giants were just by far some of the best creatures in standard, uh, I don't think this is enough to propel them to any kind of new heights. I don't need them to be busted. I just need them to be solid, you know, and blue red is, is the giant tribe. So I would expect that there's going to be something that is playable, you know? Yeah. I, I think I need better than solid. Honestly, when you think about the competition for creatures and standard, I, they just, you know, if it was just say you took away the split side of bone crusher giant, then that wouldn't be good enough. Like that wouldn't push me in that direction. And bone crusher giant is the best card across several formats, arguably. So are there going to be cards, again, of the level that they're the best card across several formats as Giants? If so, then I'm in. But if not, I don't know, man. I, 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 I'm I, doing this weird thing where like, I try to not get too excited about things that aren't facially busted anymore because I've had to pass on so many of them for so many sets now that I'm just expecting the rug to be pulled out from under me with something very, very silly at some point. And I, th- I think that's fine too, but like when, when you're looking at a new set and trying to evaluate new cards, like I, I think it is important to actually look at the potential upside for things. For sure. For sure. I'm with you. I just need some more giants and then maybe we can come back next week and I can start talking about these cards in a more positive light. Yeah. The problem is, is that when I, I find that like when you, when you poo poo on cards and then they print like an enabler for it, you close them off. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. already too far gone, you know? Good point. Uh, I will be conscientious of that as we get more cards in this set. Okay. Binding the Old Gods to BG Saga. Chapter 1, destroy target non-land permanent and opponent controls. Chapter 2, search your library for a forest card. Put it onto the battlefield taps, then shuffle your library. Chapter 3, creatures you control gain death touch until end of turn. What a what a thrilling conclusion to the saga. <laughs> yeah, the saga didn't end on a real high note. Uh, I think the first two chapters are solid, though. And if you equate destroy target non-land permanent with like Vraska's Contempt, obviously there's timing issues and it doesn't come out that fast and it's sorcery speed, but you're killing planeswalkers, you're killing artifacts, enchantments, all the really problematic stuff that could potentially give you a hard time. Binding the old gods hits it all. You're blinking you with Urien. 
You're blinking with Urian. Thank you for saying it for me. You're getting a land out of your deck, specifically a forest card, which is not a forest. It could be a snow-covered forest. It could Triome. be Triome. It could be some of these snow-covered dual lands. So that's a powerful search effect. And then the death touch thing, whatever. I mean, it could matter. Certainly if you have trample creatures in your deck, that sounds really good, right? You've, you've done the trample death touch thing before with Embercleave, so you know how good that works. Yeah, I was thinking uh, if if there was like a chain whirler type of thing too, like that's another thing that you could do. Okay, will that work? Like if I cast a chain whirler after this saga triggers, it has death touch. Uh no, right? No. Yeah, so it w- it can't be chain whirler specifically, but like any sort of pinger that you have on the battlefield yeah. or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. I I can't think of one off the top of my head, but something to look out for for sure, and something to do a scryfall search for and see if you can turn one up. I am optimistic about this card finding a spot as a niche removal spell. I, I really hope it does because this feels like, again, good fair magic, uh, classic, classic rock. Nothing beats rock. And this is doing all the traditional rock stuff. Uh, I, I hope I get a chance to cast this card. And you mentioned Satessan Champion, which like is a card that I started to phase out of my memory banks. But there's good enchantments right? in the set so right? far. Yeah, that's, I'm seeing it. That's the thing that you you know you can't forget, right? You have to look for for the upside and not phase it out. And when you see stuff like this, you're just like, oh yeah, that thing. Like that definitely makes that thing a little bit better. Is it there yet? You know, maybe, maybe not. We'll see. Yeah, nice little defensive tool. Uh, there's also things like Calyx, which is a card I I really like playing and played quite a bit. So that being able to find a removal spell can be quite good. Uh, we'll we'll see if that all amounts to something. Behold the multiverse. Three U instant. Scry two, then draw two cards. Fertel one U. During your turn, you may pay two and exile this card from your hand face down. Cast it at a later turn for its foretell cost. So I am assuming when I cast this card for its foretell cost, it's it's still an instant, right? That that timing restriction doesn't change based on foretelling. Yeah. Uh okay. I, I would I would hope so. Otherwise, yeah. this card is way worse. But yeah, yeah, I, I'm I'm pretty sure it works that way. I just wanted to make sure. I would play this card on its face. I have played this card on its face. We've we've done this with decks that couldn't really benefit from energy, and still played. Was it glimpse? Glimpse glimmer, the unthinkable. Gl- glimmer of glimmer. genius. Glimmer of genius. Thank you. Glimpse the unthinkable is the middle card. Yeah, we did that. It was fine. It was acceptable. So how meaningful is foretell? I don't know. I am still trying to figure out this ability. Does it matter to be able to protect your hand from disruption? Does it matter way more in terms of just breaking down mana cross across multiple turns? And it's funny we see this, I don't know if it was last week or the week before, but I mentioned Echo and cards needing to cost like yeah. 1.5 mana to be good enough. Yep. To me, Behold the Multiverse costs 3.5 mana. Like if I was evaluating it, that's how I'd look at it. And that foretell cost is like a 3.5 mana cost. You get to break it down across a few turns. So I think they did a nice job of finding a, a sweet spot to really empower some cards in a new way. I don't know how good it is. I'm excited to play with it, but I am pretty sure Behold the Multiverse is at least playable, maybe very good. I typically hate inspirations. Mm-hmm. And the big problem with stuff like Glimmer was that I've talked about this before on the podcast, but it might have been years ago, right? Where it's like, you know, your opponent has their Glimmer turn and they basically need that to get the velocity to be able to continue dealing with your threats. So like 
maybe if you had a big threat, you would not play it on turn three into their disallow. You would wait until turn four so that they would have to counter it and not be able to actually cast their glimmer. And then yep. you would just try and hammer them with threats and they would just rot in their hand. And that is basically the problem with these four mana card drawing spells. And this card basically fixes all that because now if you have like an essence scatter or something, you just get to foretell this and then have both open. Or if you don't have anything to do on turn two, you just get to foretell this and have it sit there. And then it's, it's a hell of a bargain, right? At two mana. Yeah. So if you have nothing to do on turn two and you get to uh, foretell this, I mean, you're, you're doing great, I think. So I, I agree with you. It, it does, it does feel like you're saving mana on this because you are going to end up saving mana on various turns, but there are also just going to be some turns where you're paying like four straight up for this. But like, if you're not going to spend, you know, two mana on turn two, or if on turn four, you think your opponent is going to cast something in your essence scatter that you're going to have to counter and you get to foretell this kind of for free. It's, it's like you just gain two mana there, you know? So uh, yep. this, this card seems awesome to me. Modality is, is the theme of this week. Also the current theme of magic, the gathering, having all these options, it feels good. The fact that the counterspell turn has moved to like turn three for the most part now only pushes in favor of this card. Of course, like if you have the essence scatter, you can hold it up and just wait till you get to turn four. So any kind of traditional control pattern really benefits from this. And I love the idea of like turn one shock your thing. I mean, shock kind of stinks, but Go with me here. Shock your thing. Turn two, foretell this. Turn three, counter your thing. Turn four, I've got all my mana open. If you do something, I'm ready to respond. If you don't, I'm drawing my cards and I'm starting to pull away from the game very, very quickly. So that kind of play pattern has a lot of promise. Yeah. Next up, Sigrid, God favored. One dub dub, two two, legendary creature, human warrior. Flash, first strike, protection from God creatures. When this enters the battlefield, exile up to one target attacking or blocking creature until this leaves the battlefield. So ideal world, this might just eat two creatures. Ideally. Uh, it certainly seems very powerful against any kind of small attacking deck, mono red, mono white. Uh, I, th I think you'll get that exchange a lot. Uh, they found a way to put a comes into play ability that can't be exploited with Urian. So that's that's probably a good thing. I don't know, man. I, I I think this card does cool things, specifically in those two matchups I talked about. So maybe it's got some sideboard play. It's hard to supplant Skyclave Apparition, though. My number one magic card of 2020. Uh, a big fan of the versatility, big fan of all it accomplishes for white. And if the three drop spot gets really crowded, I'm leaning towards Skyclave Apparition. And there's other three drops around out there, too. There's things like Heliod and... Uh, I think white is just really, really flooded for options at the three mana spot as it stands. So high competition, but your, your specific scenario of I kill two of your creatures, I think that's enough on its face to get some sideboard play for this card at least. Yeah, and there, there are definitely going to be tournaments like Pro Tours or whatever where people are going to play like one of this in their main deck or in their sideboard or whatever, right? Because mm, Take advantage then, of open deck lists. Yeah, then then you yeah. kind of have to play around it. Uh, it. It's also worth noting that it uh, can get blocking creatures. So like you can also just use this offensively too, which is really nice. So I, I think it's a, maybe a little bit weak 
from like, you know, current magic standards or whatever, but it, it does enough things that I think it'll probably see play at some point. Yeah. Maybe there's a, a place too where like the protection from God creatures actually matters. Like it, say this had protection from Uro, brick walling Uro in a format would have made a decent difference. So if God creatures is just like an omnipresent thing and there's gods everywhere, I could see that clause also getting this some points. Sure. Mast Vandal, 1G, 1-3, creature, shapeshifter, changeling. When this enters the battlefield, you may exile a creature card from your graveyard. If you do, exile target artifact or enchantment and opponent controls. Thank you. We've needed something like this for a long time. We don't have enough disenchants in standard basically ever. And, uh, you know, the stats on this are not great or whatever, but I'm glad this is, that this exists. Are, are you worried about the need to fuel this and how often that may actually come back to bite you it's not zero for sure yeah but i don't know like even in the context of something like uh modern humans that had to play reclamation sage or night of Mm. autumn or something like this is a a pretty big get for for them too and i think there are almost certainly going to be some matchups where you're just not going to be able to use it which stinks so you're gonna have to pick and choose uh because it's it's not free for sure yeah, this is a great one to keep in your memory banks in those super deep formats because there's metagames where I think this will be the best option possible for those slots and others where it may not be that good. So it's going to have to pick and choose their spots. As far as standard, I am a little concerned about needing a creature to exile, but I have really wanted a Reclamation Sage several times. And if there's some tribal synergy I could get off of this card that is enough to get me excited about it, even if it does have some potential downside. Maybe we're just like doing some light graveyard fueling and that's enough to make it so it's never a concern. And I'm, I'm sure a bunch of archetypes will be in that market. Elvish Warmaster, 1G, 2-2 creature, elf warrior. Whenever one or more other elves enters the battlefield under your control, create a 1-1 green elf warrior creature token. This ability triggers only once each turn. 5GG, Elves you control get plus two, plus two, and gain death touch until end of turn. This card feels like it was stolen from Lorwyn. Like, it's it's just not of a 2020s power level. It, it's fine, and, like, heavy elf decks will probably find a use for putting more bodies on the battlefield. They always do. But all the limitations on it are very strange. The overrun effect is small-ish for elves like they've they've done this thing better before something like azuri comes to mind so it, it all feels a little conservative which makes me question like are there a lot of good elves coming because this has this knobs turned pretty far down to me yeah or this is one of two different payoffs for the tribe like this is the thing that is supposed to help you go wide and yeah. this is not this is not like your lord exactly yeah, yeah. this is just like your solid two drop but I, I definitely agree with you. Uh, there are ways to break this ability triggers only once each turn, like collect a company or whatever. Maybe that's a little bit too expensive uh, in, in combination with this thing to try and get like two elves out of the deal. I don't know. But I, I agree with you. This this feels like a rather tame Lord type of thing, like a end game payoff. But it, it does help you go wide, you know? So Yeah, I actually have found a reason to revise my opinion a little bit. So obviously that clause has to be there because otherwise it would trigger off itself because it doesn't discriminate based on tokens. So if you have some way to make elf tokens. Sure, you get an extra one. 
you get an extra one. And usually something that makes an elf token is like an elf itself, but there are some exceptions to that cards, which just are elf token generators. And maybe that's what this is supposed to enable a lot more than just, I played my elf, here's a little bonus. Yeah, well, this this does say other, right? So it doesn't trigger off itself. Correct. Correct. But, but yeah, you're you're right that it it you know if there are elf token generators, it makes sense that this would work with those. And then yeah, you know, maybe there's an instant speed one or something. I don't know. Maybe yeah, that would be a good application. Alarin's God of the Cosmos. This is uh, another DFC. Three UU, one one, legendary creature god. This gets plus one, plus one for each card in your hand and each foretold card you own in exile. At the beginning of your end step, choose a card type, then reveal the top two cards of your library. Put all cards of the chosen type into your hand and the rest on the bottom of your library in any order. Backside, Haka, Whispering Raven, one U, two, three, legendary creature bird, flying, Whenever this deals combat damage to a player, return it to its owner's hand, then scry two. Okay, so the the other god, pretty easy to evaluate, I think. Uh, both sides were solid, and I could see myself playing either in and of itself, and I thought combined they formed something special. Here, I don't think either side of this card is particularly good. So I need to ask, does it, combined to be something more. And obviously it's supposed to do that because Haka, Whispering Raven, resets itself back to your hand. So you get to play it early as Haka, deal some very limited amounts of damage, but set up the top of your library. Then at some point, hopefully on a following turn where you know what's on top of your library, you deploy Alrund and you guarantee yourself at least one card, a decent body uh, all of it feels a little light to me. I I think it's interesting. I I love the card conceptually. I I love the idea of Haka being like this omen of Alrund ar- arriving. I think it's a beautiful card, beautifully illustrated. In terms of like, am I playing this in constructed? I don't see it yet. You have any exciting uses for this card that'll prove me wrong? No, not really. I, I basically agree with what you said where, you know, you, you play the bird early and then at some turn, on some turn, you hit them with it, scry, play the front half and then get at least one of the, the top cards. So gives you something to do with your mana early, like, you know, two, three blocker back in the day would have been really exciting. It's a bunch of jackal mm-hmm. pups. We're not really there now, I think. So uh, it's probably just going to be a thing that that trades rather than holds down the fort. And then basically, it, like the front side, it's like it's it's a marrow that maybe draws you a, a card. Is that good enough? I, I don't really think so. But it's it's interesting because of the utility that you get from the backside. Yeah, I think the mana investment is just a little too much on the backside and. If you're spending all your mana doing this in the early turns, it's really hard for me to believe you've gotten to a place where Alrund is good. Now, maybe that's the wrong way to look at it. Maybe it's just like there is an emergency option and there to set up the scenarios we're talking about where you just perfectly line up the top two cards of your library. Not to overuse the phrase, but it all feels a little 2010 to me. So I I don't buy it right now, but maybe though there will be a reason why I'm convinced something you can do to benefit from the synergy. I mean, like 
flipping the card in some way, blinking the card, maybe that's good enough because if you play it as Haka and then blink it, it'll come back as Alrund, I believe. So yeah, that's cool. I, I don't know if it matters enough, but it's cool. You could like hit them, put the trigger on the stack and then blink it. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. that's interesting. I don't know if that's good enough, though. It, yeah, it all feels a little thin to me. So we'll, we'll see if there's ways to make it thicker. Well, let's see if uh, his epiphany is any better. All runs epiphany. Five UU sorcery. Create two one one blue bird creature tokens with flying. Takes in, take an extra turn after this one. Exile this. Foretell four UU. So you get to basically suspend it for two mana and then cast it for six at some point, which is technically one mana more expensive than the the full rate, but you get to split it up. So you kind of feel like you're saving mana. I am a believer in time walks by default. I think they often find a home regardless of how good of a time walk they are. It's, it's just an inherently abusable mechanic. I think time walks that bring bodies with them are extremely good. You can do a lot to control planeswalkers and and turn corners very quickly. All that being said, compared to the last time walk we endured, like Nexus of Fate, uh, this is way down on the power scale for sure. I think that's good. I think you want your time walks to be way down on the power scale. I'm happy this is costed where it is. This will be possibly a niche player, but I, I don't feel any hard pull towards building decks around it. And maybe if it was still like, the Omnath era, this card would be more attractive because that deck was so snowball-y and generated so much mana that you just wanted to continue that progression. Or or maybe there's some kind of combo-ish look that can really take advantage of something like this. Maybe even returning to like huge lithoforming mana explosions and just having a time walk as big there. If there is a combo deck that benefits from just resetting and getting to get a quasi-haste, then Alloran's Epiphany could make a dent. But in terms of just rate, I'm I'm not super impressed by it. Yeah, I would have loved a time walk in the very early Genesis Ultimatum decks. Mm. And granted, those were like going off of Lotus Cobra and had Omnath and stuff, but I I feel like you could try to build the deck in a similar fashion, potentially. So it's it's something to look out for. Like the fact that it, that uh time walk exists, right? But yeah, this yes. one is is pretty clunky the bodies are small uh it it exiles itself which is great so we don't have to suffer through any more like nexus shenanigans but niche player maybe yeah i, I think so i think that's a good assessment unless like foretell is abusable like if something makes foretell spells much cheaper or let you find foretell spells or anything like that then then it makes sense why Alrin's Epiphany is so expensive. But from what I know now of the set, I think it's probably just a niche player. Okay. Old Growth Troll. GGG44 Creature Troll Warrior. Trample. When this dies, if it was a creature, return to the battlefield. It's an aura enchantment with Enchant Forest you control, and Enchant Forest has tap, add GG, and... One tap, sacrifice this land, create a tapped 4-4 green troll warrior creature token with trample. So it's it's a mouthful, but I like this card. This card is good, right? I, yeah. I, I think like green aggressive lovers are going to be all about old growth troll, and it it's versatile. It ramps you to whatever your real top end is, be it, you know, Elder Gargaroth or 
feasting troll king, whatever you're doing on the top end, old growth gets you there a little bit faster. Then it turns into a relevant body again. And 4-4 four, for four, 3, still just barely good enough, I think, in present magic. You can, you can make it work, especially if you're finding ways to get aggressive. So this seems like a good solid add to me. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it was it was one of the problems with things like Yorvo, where it's like, wow, this is really big, but you know, just dies of spot removal, and who cares? And this this actually gives you a reasonable amount of value for dying. So yeah, I'm I'm all about this card. Yeah. Also, we we mentioned trample as a way to like uh, abuse death touch earlier. So here's a trampler. Good sure. track of that kind of stuff. I, yeah. I don't think that's really the core of this card. But uh, what about devotion? Any any good devotion payoffs you can think of for old growth troll? I mean, it, it does, it provides devotion, and then if it dies, it ramps you, but this still isn't really what you would like to be doing. Like, Elvish or Llanowar Visionary in slot is generally a stronger effect for those sorts of decks, so maybe if yeah. there's, like, a more beatdown-oriented devotion deck, but, like, I don't I don't know why that would exist. Right. Well, it's, it's interesting to have uh, two solid three drops at GGG. I think that's a, a really solid curve filler and makes things like Nylea start to look promising, although, you know, not over the moon about that card, but it's there, it exists, you can look at it again. Yeah, no, that's legit. I don't know, I, I hesitate to even bring this up, but Nyx Lotus is still a thing technically, so if you want to yeah. go like even harder on these green decks, I don't, I don't think you really need that. I think they kind of have like the end game on lock, but it's there. Yeah, I have... I have to go look at my decks from uh, Eldraine era before we realized just how busted everything was because there was definitely green devotion stuff I was doing and I can't remember the core of it. I, I don't know exactly what I was trying to accomplish, but I'm going to go take a look back and, and well, figure out what I was doing there. You had you had like Grazer, Finale of Devastation, and got uh, Nyx Bloom Ancient, I believe. And that, right. was, that was your big thing. And there was like yeah, the four yeah. mana 4-4 four, four that drew you cards. and Hmm. Yeah, maybe we've lost a lot of the tools. We'll go back and take a look. I, I like revisiting old decks anyway, just to see how far off I was. But there's always good ideas to be found in trolling through them. Of course. Trolling? Was that a was that nope. pun subconscious. intended? Subcon I, I'm telling you, all of my punning is subconscious. I never want to do a pun. That's not my goal in life. Like I'm not trying to do it. It just happens. Okay. I don't believe you, but that's fine. I promise. Vorinclex, Monstrous Raider, 4GG66, Legendary Creature, Phyrexian Praetor, Trample Haste. If you would put one or more counters on a permanent or player, put twice that many of each of those kinds of counters on that permanent or player instead. If an opponent would put one or more counters on a permanent or player, they put half that many of each of those counters on that permanent or player instead. Rounded down casual card am, am i gonna get beat up for calling this a casual i mean if it, it feels like a casual card i don't want to just say because it has a doubling season attached it's supposed to be a commander card that's not my default mode but i i'm struggling to think of what you want to do to get worthy payoff from vorniclex after investing six mana in it in a constructed format because you you can just get better payoffs i think if if this didn't have haste i i would i would be right there with you Okay. Haste, okay. haste, I think, adds a lot. And there's, you know, stuff like Great Henge and I don't know. I guess like the mono green or near mono green decks don't really have a lot of planeswalkers, but this, you know, slows down their planeswalkers or whatever. Uh, but like 6-6, six, six, Trample Haste with Upside, that's, that's enough for me to look at it, you know? 
Yeah. I, I think there's going to have to be some kind of significant payoff. Like basically you follow this with a planeswalker and win the game, which there's got to be. Uh, I, I would have to look at my list of greens planeswalkers, but I'm assuming you just get to ultimate something right away. And that's almost certainly going to be good enough to win. I guess if you staple that to a meaningful body, that's that's fine. There's there's competition for this, though, even in the same set. There's a lot of good green creatures out there right now. This costs more than Elder Gargaroth, which does more things. But if, if there's a niche role for this to fill, then I'll I'll buy it. As it stands right now, I am convinced this is supposed to be more exciting for the commander set than for the constructed set. Word. I don't know why Phyrexians are, are here, by the way. Okay. I don't know if uh, I'm you, supposed you to know. You know I don't know. So. Yeah, no, I know. I'm just saying that like you were you know, trying to hype me up as a lore guy, and it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm not quite there. But. Okay. They, they they haven't revealed that part. I mean, this, this card was know. officially previewed at this point, I'm assuming? Yes. Okay. Yeah, they showed off the, the one with the Phyrexian text, right? Right. Yeah, so it seems like this was the big reveal in the set. It got spoiled, unfortunately. But I, I also have not heard why Phyrexians are present. Cole the Forge Master, R-Dub, 2-2, Legendary Creature, Dwarf Warrior. Whenever another non-token creature you control dies, if it was enchanted or equipped, return it to its owner's hand. Creature tokens you control that are enchanted or equipped get plus one, plus one. I really need to see, like, good auras or good equipments. Otherwise, I don't understand why these things keep getting printed. Agree. I don't think I have anything else to add. We, we saw a decent piece of equipment in this set and uh, Halvar got a battle. So that's there. It exists. It's it's decent, right? But it's like it's good on its face. It's not good because you're getting into these like equipment shenanigans or whatever. And these cards are, are so tempting. And then I like take a look and it's like, oh, the the enablers are just like pretty bad. Yeah. So I don't I don't really get it. Yeah, I kind of already did this with like Nahiri in the last set and the payoffs weren't there, but you keep making them at some point, the payoffs will be there. So we'll see. Yeah, and there's like all the warrior stuff too. I looked at all that and there's just nothing. Okay, we'll see where we are at the end of the set. Well, we're, we're at the end of the show. Reflections of Lit Yara for you, Enchantment. As this enters the battlefield, choose a creature type. Whenever you cast a spell of the chosen type, copy that spell. A copy of a permanent spell becomes a token, which seems new to me. Copy of a permanent spell. Yeah, that, that is a unique wording. Uh, I, I didn't really give it much thought because I just like assumed it would work that way. But uh, interesting piece of reminder text. This is either broken or does nothing, right? Like there's no middle ground here. Yeah. Yeah, you're never okay. like, oh, wow, I'm so happy I got a little bit of value out of this. It's like, no, you're just going stone off. Yeah. Yeah, I think this either combos in some way or just isn't meaningful whatsoever. I, I guess it's like, in some ways, counter magic protection, which is neat. But if you're paying five for your counter magic protection, that's not really its intended purpose. So uh, again, this strikes me as a casual card, but one that with the right weird circumstances is potentially abusable. We've seen things like this go wrong before with loops and whatnot. So uh, no idea what you're supposed to do with it yet. Yeah, me either. But a uh, powerful card, definitely a lot of upside. And we've had some decks in standard that are able to just kind of like goof off. Like the, the mono green food decks did that to some degree, right? 
Mm-hmm. And if you're you're doing it to set up this really powerful, unbeatable endgame, then it might be worth it. But it is limited to a certain creature type, and right. Obviously, we also Thassa is out there, which like does some of this already. If you're trying to benefit from the comes into play triggers, true, so. true, yeah. So we'll we'll have to wait and see. Probably, I mean, there's like the the clone that you know you you draw cards when you cast more of them or whatever, and I guess this kind of enables that if you want to go okay, that route. Yeah. But like that's probably not a thing that's actually KOing people. So we'll see. Yeah, a, a lot of will sees thus far in the set, which is odd usually there's more stuff we can just evaluate on its face but it feels like uh, a tribal set and tribal sets just have a lot of that okay need to see all the pieces nature to it uh i i think again the the double face cards are what stand out to me as the most meaningful um but still a lot of space to look through yeah that it's it's definitely a problem with these type of sets that where it's very symbiotic right mm-hmm. because a card gets previewed and you're not seeing the full picture, especially when it's like an elf payoff or something. It's like, okay, well, I, I would like to do this thing, but now I have to just sit through this slow burn in order to figure out if it's actually possible or not. And Right. How, how do you think that plays in terms of like, you know, I give you the magic cat that puts you in charge of the game and you're making all the decisions about preview seasons and things like that. Do you think having these piecemeal payoffs where you only see a portion of the picture is beneficial to keeping interest throughout preview season? Or do you think it blunts the impact of revealing these cards a little bit? Well, I, th- I think it depends on who you're shooting to and what the composition of the set looks like. If elves, they decide are not a tribe that is going to be strong enough for constructed, right? So it's a little bit on the weaker end, maybe good in limited or meant to pay off uh, you know, eternal formats or commander folks, things along those lines, previewing something like Elvish Warmaster by itself makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. But as far as like the giant cards, I mean, you you on the show are just the, the actual case in point for this is the problem with not also previewing like a powerful giant alongside those cards, right? Right. So I would I would much rather see things kind of revealed in packages. Maybe like you save one of the pieces for for later on down the line or something. But I, I would definitely try to get in tune with how you know players are actually going to react to the the previews, especially for a set like this. And yeah, I, I think yeah, I think I'd be pretty good at that, at least for the competitive aspect. That's a great point. Uh, doing like Giant Day or yeah. Elf Day. That seems to have more appeal than just like, here's a random elf, here's a random giant, and you can't get like excited about the tribe all at once. And, you know, it's also, we talk a lot about magic as identity. People identify with tribes. So all the merfolk people get to have their day and all the elf people get to have their day. That that all seems pretty good to me. I, I would consider doing things in that fashion, especially yeah. when it comes to tribal sets. Yeah, I'd be down with that. I mean, the so they do the... Uh, like mechanic reveals and stuff like that. And maybe I, I feel like it's it's been like a little light compared to other sets, but normally it's like, okay, here is, I don't know, Boast or whatever. And it's like, this is the Berserker tribe. And then you show off like four Berserkers or something that look cool. And I, I think that that would do more to get people excited for like the mechanic or, you know, the tribe, if that's supposed to be a thing that's pushed. Then just like, okay, here's one. And then like every couple of days you'll get another one. Right. 
I vote huh. for Elf Day. Let's do it. Yeah, I, I will be celebrating Elf Day myself this year, I guess. And if, if anyone wants to celebrate with me, I'll get you my details and we'll uh, we'll have a socially distanced elf party. It'll be great. <laughs> everyone will have a good time. Like, it's got to be better to just be like Elf Day, Giant Day, etc. than like, well, this was a crappy day for like elves and giants and berserkers. And then like next week, it's like, well, this was kind of a crappy day, too. And then. The third week or whatever, it's like, okay, well, now we have all the pieces. This looks kind of cool, but like I'm already like beat up and burnt out. Yeah, you've moved on. Trust me, I have plenty of thoughts on how previews are currently ran and distributed and could go off for quite a bit of time on that. But uh, I, I think we'll save that for some some other avenue. Uh, you could see my Twitter account for my feelings on how we are presently doing the preview seasons and why I think it's a system that should just go away and maybe it will be replaced by Elf Day someday in the future. Well, from from doing this show, it was like, okay, we normally record on Wednesdays. We're going to push it back to Thursday because that's when previews start up again. And we'll wait until kind of later in the day for all the previews to sort of filter out and then we'll do a show on it. And we we don't know you know, exactly who was previewing all of the cards and at what time or whatever. And I know that they made a post about that at some point, but I'm not going to like, you know, go check that. Like we normally have these websites that gather all of the different previews together. Right. Or at at very least like daily MTG could just release all of the cards that they've officially previewed and we could just go off that list, but they didn't do that. The other websites were like a little slow on the uptake for that. And then it was just like, well, now we're in the mix with all of the cards that are unofficially spoiled. And I don't know if, if you're conscientious about what you want your content creators to make content about. It's like you should have a place for all the officially previewed cards or whatever, or have have it be obvious where the, they're all coming from or like what you should be talking about, you know? And it's like, we kind of struggled through that today and it sucked. I think a lot of the premise... Uh, all right, I've, and now I've just decided I'm getting into it, so bear with me. A, a lot of the premise behind using the community to reveal cards is good-natured and comes from a good place and w- wanting to share a part of magic with the people who make content about it. I, I, I do think it has like good intentions. I don't think it's a solely evil thing designed strictly to exploit free labor. That's That's not its purpose. It's coming from a good place. The end result of it is a little different. And I do think it leverages people's platforms and their user bases and doesn't reward them appropriately and doesn't pay them appropriately. Now, if you want to talk about a mode I could sign up for and still using content creators, if if you want to use content creators, host them, put them on the daily MTG site where all we know all of the preview cards will show up with an introduction from the content creator you chose to work with. Now you're starting to make a good argument that you're giving them a platform. You're actually sharing something with them. Because as it stands now, and I don't say this to be dismissive, but I don't care who previewed these cards. I, that's just not how I engage with them. I go to these sites and I see a list of all of them. And I'm happy for people that got to preview them. I'm, you know, If you enjoyed it, I'm not trying to take away from that. But that's just not how I see these cards. If you did it differently and hosted them on a central platform that was curated by Wizards and still tied them to a personality, I think you'd still do that. Just ask people to write for Daily MTG for a day. Sure, that works. I, I think that's a, 
a good scenario for everyone. But the way it's currently being done, uh, it's not working for me. And I, I don't think it's actually achieving anything at this point. Uh, I, I agree with basically everything you said. I think that in the beginning, when Magic was smaller and the internet was smaller and it was like, oh, here's, you know, Kibler can write about this card because it's a dragon or whatever. It's like, okay, that's cool. You know, and then you get the Dragon Master stamp of approval on this thing. And that's sweet. Uh, but now that it's like everyone has their own social media accounts and Wizards gets to tap into everyone's follower accounts rather than just their own, then I, I you know, and they get to work out like these marketing plans, regardless of how good or bad they are. And, you know, just push everything onto them where it's like, make a post about this on your thing and then we're done with it, right? I, I think that that is both like kind of bad and where it starts getting into exploitative territory. But yeah, if, if they did what you're talking about where it's like, okay, it's, it's preview day. Let's go to magic.gg or daily MTG. And, you know, if you want to see these previews for the first time, you are basically forced to interact with like the mothership website and the content creator who, who wrote this piece versus they make, a tweet that's you know 200 characters long and then someone from mythic spoiler just like takes the cards puts them on your website aggregates them and everyone just goes there it's like at least that way i would be like oh now maybe i know that this content creator exists and this piece of content was cool versus like if i don't follow them on twitter i'm just never seeing their tweet anyway correct Correct. I, d- I don't think you've actually provided them with any benefit yeah. by engaging them at this point. So exactly, and, and I, it's a one-sided transaction, basically. Yeah, and and also, you know, Wizards doesn't really have to do anything. Like they they schedule out who's going to have what cards and when, but like they're not working with that content creator and like you know putting a thing on their website or whatever. It is very much just like I email you this card now. It now it's in your hands, right? And we don't have to do anything anymore. And it just ends up being like pretty bad for everyone involved, honestly. I think so. I think it's time to take a look at it and uh, come up with something a little bit better. But I feel that way about many things in Magic and the world and uh, would always encourage people to be reviewing the systems in place. And I think sometimes you just have to distance yourself from the intended purpose of things. And I, I think some of it gets lost when there's people upset that content creators aren't being compensated and it's like well what's the value of this and that's that's not really what it's about it's not about finding the appropriate value it's about making a one-sided transaction just say nothing to the fact that like they now have access to basically a completely controllable economy when it comes to arena and you could just give people a bunch of arena packs for doing this work with no consequence like even with magic online there's some consequence you could theoretically devalue cards there's no consequence when it comes to arena you can just hit them up with a bunch of cards so Right, unless unless you're talking about like the the thing that also is exploitative, where you're just like, well, I would, but you know, I, I checked and they spend five hundred dollars every time a set comes out. So like, why why Correct. would I dip into that? It's like, come on. Yes, there's there's enough middle ground to uh, reward everyone. And for me, I would start with just revamping the program and thinking of ways that it works for everyone involved, rather than trying to necessarily nail a monetary sweet spot. Just provide value to all parties and then there's no real issue on my end. Also for whatever it's worth, it's, it's pretty easy to figure out the value of a tweet. Like we are in an era of influencers where things have going rates, you know, it's not like, Oh, this is like murky territory or whatever. It's, it's not. 
Yeah. No, we, I mean, we could just talk for ourselves. We have pretty clear rates we use when we talk with advertisers, which is rare. I mean, it's not something we do a lot, but we, we know how we do it when the time comes. And, you know, if they wanted us to preview a card, we tell them our rates. That's, that's just what it is. Like if you're going to control the content, then we'll, we'll give you our numbers and we can work with that. But uh, in the absence of any kind of guidance, I, I don't think taking advantage of people's goodwill is the place you want to be. It's it's very short term, you know. It's a short term outlook, but I don't know. That's that's kind of where you are when you're a company that's beholden to stockholders and stuff like true. that. True. So very true. I, I get it. I understand why it's there. I do too. I, do I, too. I, I just don't think it's great. Yeah, like many things in this world. I get it. I know how we got here, but we shouldn't be here. Yeah. Game. Game. Nope. Questions. Back no, on the question train no. this week. Come on. Why are you hating on the questions? Dude, I tried to skip. All right. You have to pick the question then. All right. Well, this week's question comes to us from Fuzzy Dan over in our Discord. Of course, uh, I won't say every week. Some weeks we go to our Discord. I- I'm trying to basically be a little bit more conscientious with how often I ask for questions because I feel like that is apt to increase the quality of questions that we get. If I'm not always like question, 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 and just every now and then I reach out for questions, I think we're going to get some bangers. And this week's banger comes from Fuzzy Dan, who wants to know, with the holidays behind us, were there any holiday foods or snacks that you missed out on this year? Or any foods you made a point to get to reclaim some normalcy? And this is the part that was really interesting to me. Fuzzy Dan says, for me, it was a cheese ball covered in pepper jelly to dip wheat thins on New Year's Eve. And I think we all need to find ways to reclaim normalcy and celebrate in very difficult times. But Fuzzy Dan, that sounds horrible. I don't know what a cheese ball <laughs> covered in pepper jelly is, but it does not sound good. And I, I, I want to investigate this food more so I can understand what you're talking about. Do you know what a cheese ball covered in pepper jelly is? Well, he's he's dipping wheat thins in it, right? So right, it's, but it's, like it's just like a I don't know, like a like a guac or something. I don't know how this came to be, or you know how this is like the normal family thing that the Fuzzy Dan did or whatever. It's it's a mystery for sure. Well, that's a big part of my question. Like, is am I just blank here? Like, do I not know what a cheese ball covered in pepper jelly is, and I should, or is it like? a regional thing and fuzzy dance in Europe or something. And it's very popular in Europe. I, I mean, I just don't know. I, I have never heard of a cheese ball covered in pepper jelly before. I don't, I don't know either, but I'm very uncultured. So uh, same, same. Okay. Yeah. So I, I could say like, this is heresy or whatever, but I don't know, man. I have no right. idea. Yeah. And that kind of goes to my answer is that, so there were these things that, my, I, for as long as I can remember, my mom made them at Christmas. Uh, she called them Rocky Roads. And they're, they're similar to like what you've, if you've heard of a Rocky Road, you've probably seen something close. It's like chocolate, marshmallows, peanuts, raisins. And she made them every Christmas. And when I was a kid, I loved them. I still love them, quite frankly. She still makes them. And I think they're delicious. And I would be excited come Christmas time. And you know, as I got older and I started to have my own space and my own apartments that I shared with people, or I was at college, my mom would send me these rocky roads and I'd share them with everyone. And I'd be like, these are so good. I'm so excited to have them. And I'd always look and watch their faces and they were just kind of like slowly turned to frowns. (laughs) Nobody (laughs) likes these rocky roads except for me. Like everyone just hates them. And they're like super rich and chocolatey and 
my mom is not like a tradition. She's a, she's a good cook. She makes a lot of good things, but she's not like a trained cook and she doesn't know a bunch about cooking. She just like has her family recipes that she's made for a long time. And I'm partial to a lot of them, but they're different and they're, they're not what people would expect in most cases. People hate Rocky roads besides me. I didn't get them this year. I, I, maybe that's a good thing. I know my wife hates them too. She wants nothing to do with them, but, uh, I, that if I missed any one food, it would be the Rocky roads that everyone besides me hates. If Janelle really loved you, she would learn how to cook Rocky roads heinously so that you can enjoy uh, them. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure she could, but like, I, I think part of it too is just like, I know that my mom goes through the effort to make them. So I'm willing to, even if I've grown past them as a taste, like they just remind me of her and her efforts to try and put together good Christmases, despite not having a lot when we were growing up. So I, I probably focus more on that side of things. I, I don't even think I would want Janelle to make them for me. Like, no, nah, it, it, there's just not, it's not worth the effort. Honestly, this sounds like a thing that's on you, man. Probably. So you're, you just have a brother for siblings, right? Right. Uh, so yeah, it's on one of you two to carry on the Rocky road tradition. Otherwise yeah. it, it dies out. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. Maybe it's just for the best that it goes away. It's only me and him enjoying them. And I think my dad likes them too, but I don't know. Maybe there's other people on this planet. I, if I, uh, if we have some normalcy and we're doing magic events around Christmas time next year, I will travel with Rocky Roads and I will let our listeners try some and we'll see what the reviews come back. Like. Oh my God. That, that sounds awful. Uh, I know. I know you're looking forward to it. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not trying one of those. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I I don't have or yeah, I'm I'm like more stable now, but I I definitely did not have a lot of stability in my life. I don't know for the first thirty years or so. So I don't think that there's any sort of like traditional holiday food that really resonates with me, especially since through like a lot of my twenties, uh, every year year or two, I would be living with different people and. Maybe that was just like hanging out with them on the holidays or like they were going to go see their family and I would get invited or something. So like I've sampled a lot of different people's holiday foods, but there was never like a constant for me. Okay. Uh, that's a totally fair answer. Anything like you can only get come the holidays that you like? I I already know the answer to this. Like you're definitely not an eggnog person. Nah. You're not really like a candy person. So I, I mean, I like candy canes. I, I'm sure that's not super exciting. I used to I used to love candy, man. I always had candy in school, you know, uh, and then just at, at some point I just kind of dropped it because it was like really, really bad for you. And, and I just, you know, true. I didn't need it. Right. So, you know, there, there are candies that I like, but none of them are, are really holiday related. I think that there are some candy canes that I do like, but they're not necessarily like peppermint or anything like that it's yeah like, I, I really like like sweet tarts candy canes sure. or candy cane that i've had a bunch yeah uh, yeah i could see that yeah i feel like all those like super sweet candy brands put out their own candy canes now and uh, those are the ones i really enjoy yeah i'd be down to sample a few of those uh as as for me like you know for holidays this year like obviously i, I stayed in by myself and my cats and we just did things like it was a normal day. There wasn't a whole lot of specialness going on. I'm, I don't remember exactly, you know, what happened on each of the days or whatever. But if you told me that I had a tombstone on Christmas, I would believe you, because it's pretty likely. Yeah, I think I had the uh, traditional Jewish Christmas. Now, my family, my father's Jewish. Uh, my mom is not, so I technically am not Jewish. So we always did like a weird 
split come the holiday season. You know, I would get like a Hanukkah check from my grandparents and then celebrate Christmas in my house. It sounds um, like you were double dipping. I was, yeah, a little bit. Uh, the dipping wasn't that large, so don't worry about okay, it. Okay, okay. Nobody really got all that much. But we did the traditional Jewish Christmas of Chinese food on Christmas. That was that was our plan this year. And uh, yeah, no no candy canes or anything, nothing exciting, no traditional holiday foods, just Chinese food on Christmas. I don't think I had Chinese food until I was like 25. So <laughs> that is fascinating. And we'll <laughs> delve into that in the future. Um, but for now, I want everyone to look forward to next Christmas magic tournaments at my backpack, Rocky Roads and Candy Canes for everyone. You heard it here first. And hopefully we are in like someplace cold, you know, because I can imagine those things just like melting and being yeah. a mess if it was like hey, we're going to Hawaii for Christmas or whatever. Yeah. We, don't, we don't really uh, do that stuff anymore. It's like, oh, Pro Tour around Christmas time, it's in Montreal. Yeah, wherever it's cheap to get a, yeah, <laughs> to get exactly. a convention center at the time is where yep. you end up. Yeah, so and, I, look, I think I, you'll be fine. I think you'll be fine. Yeah, I'll take any convention center at this point. I don't, I don't really care. Do it in you know Kenosha. Wherever we have to go, we can go back to, uh, what is it, the Meadowlands Expo Center. All those places are on the table for me right now. I'll take any one of them. Yeah, dude, I don't care. Like, if every tournament was in Worcester, I'd be there. DCU Center, let's go. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. I don't care. I'm with you. Game. Good luck.